Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you today? I'm good and I'm grateful for everything. Grateful. Anything in particular that you're grateful for or just a general no, gratitude? I was just chatting with one of my friends that uh, he's in Europe and, you know, we quite often forget how fortunate we are even just being in Canada and, you know, having, uh, I mean, imagine just uh, some of the, the turmoil of uh, people having to be uprooted and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty sad. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Lots to be grateful for especially uh, in Calgary, because we live in a pretty low density, pretty chill place, which seems to be yeah. muddling along pretty well. Um, and recently we were recognized as, uh, I think we're number three in the world. Yeah, we got the top Canadian of... city. I, I feel like Calgary, I've seen it, I don't remember if it was the same institution, uh, like you mentioned, the other day, they have different methodologies for how they measure that. Though I, I, I don't think affordability even came into as a factor in that particular ranking, um, which I find outrageous, to be honest. I think that would be the number one thing that they would consider. But I think uh, Calgary has been rated pretty high before. Um, yeah. I think it is hit number one before. But I don't think it's hit number three. Was it number three globally? Yeah, globally. I mean, we're usually in the top, uh, I mean, along with Toronto and Vancouver, uh, probably one of the things uh, as you're talking about, like with affordability that uh, it's becoming really cost prohibitive in uh, those cities. I think you're getting us started today uh, for our EdTech office hours regarding uh, something new from IA Rater, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, basically, um, Information Architects, uh, uh, they have come out with a new product that they're putting in beta right now, which is called Presenter. So, uh, you know, previously they, their flagship product is IA Writer. And so, uh, and I, I believe you've used it quite a bit. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's pared down, very simple, just to get you back into uh, writing. Well, they're taking that same methodology and applying it to now PowerPoint. And so I've uh, played around with it a little bit. And it's pretty interesting. You can go and very easily uh, create a slide deck, uh, embed images, your text. Uh, uh, it'll go and format it accordingly. When you put it into presenter mode, just like a teleprompter, it actually, well, one screen will go and show all your notes that you've created. And you can go and uh, you know tab through and read off your notes uh, while you're going through the various slides. So it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I think it's a good um, approach uh, uh, to something that we've all been using, and especially with with PowerPoint, uh, there's a lot of added features, and uh, it sometimes can take a lot of time just to go and format something. And uh, with them, they've just made it very easy. Uh, you just put in your bullet points, you put in the the items. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. Well, this is interesting. So. I, I'm glad that you found this. I um, I don't actually follow artificial intelligence, the team. You're right. I do use their IA uh, writer, which is my primary blog blogging tool. 
I think I've talked about it on this podcast before. You can get it for Windows and Mac. It really, I've used a bunch of writing tools and I have more than one. I have, if you want to write a book or something, I don't think it would be appropriate. You know, Scrivener would be a slightly more feature rich writing tool uh, for, you know, an academic paper. You could use LaTeX or something. But if you're writing a post or you're writing thoughts down, I think, you know, I don't know of a better tool than IA Writer personally. And I've used many of them. I like that it's really simple. You have folders in the folders, you create documents that have text. I mean, that's it. And you get to choose yeah. from only a couple of fonts and then you can make it bigger. But I also like the focus stability. So you can, you know, tell it to be okay. I only, you know, I want you to gray out everything except the paragraph I'm working on and stuff like that. So those are the things about it that I really appreciate. But I had no idea that they were going to apply what they've learned. And I think, you know, yeah, I, I, I a writer. I would say, I want to say AI, but it's IA writer um, has yeah, been around which for Which is some, information architects. Yeah, yeah. It's been around yeah. for some time. So now they're making this presentation tool. I um, I wonder why sometimes um, presentations are so dreaded. So when you gave this to me and I was looking at their pitch, uh, their pitch page that you sent has some really interesting data. I don't know if they stated where it came from, and I'm a bit of a source nerd that way. Um, but oh, I think they do actually have a source. Sorry about that. Um, this is citation number seven. Oh, this is from Verizon. Okay. So there's a study done on, you know, presentations and in the office culture. And it said 37% of our time is spent in meetings and presentations. I'm hoping to get that down to 10% at some point in my career. Um, 91% of listeners at business presentations admit to daydreaming. 39% of listeners at business presentations even fall asleep at some point. And 90% of presentation information is forgotten. And that last one I think really hits home. So we've pointed out some um, alternatives or templates like uh, uh, Canva is a good one for creating graphics to, you know, to get information across. That's not like text, but it's interesting to me that most people forget this content. And so I guess their pitch is that you just write, you get right to the point. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and the thing is, uh, again, their approach is just to the way that they have, uh, and I would uh, think it's probably very similar to the IA writer, but you can go and put in your headings. Those will be put onto the um, the slides themselves. So if you're looking more of a minimalistic approach to uh, slide deck design, it'll create those headings. You can put in whatever you're thinking of saying text-wise. And again, uh, you know, when you put it into presenter mode, to have that teleprompter style, I mean, it that's that's pretty cool feature. I mean, I'm surprised nobody else has done that uh, to the this date. Because uh, normally the way that we approach it is we wouldn't put in all of our text or maybe we just put some, you know, actual um, key bullet points. But this allows you to literally put in verbatim what you were going to go and speak to for that slide and you can walk your way through it. I guess you can do that with PowerPoint with the notes, but I've always had trouble getting it to work, especially if you're plugging into an external projector or something. Sometimes it messes up and you can't see it. So I ended up, I always end up like printing things and shuffling through papers. You know, it's, we're going to get to this a bit later, 
because uh, I want to talk about this book that I finished called Effortless, but it does relate to this in so far that are they, why are these other presentation tools so complicated? I mean, PowerPoint is really bad. Sorry, Microsoft. I know Microsoft Office is a standard, but it's it's really difficult to navigate. I mean, I can never remember. I use the help thing more than anything just to search for functions because I can't possibly remember where they all are. Excel seems to be better laid out in my opinion, but even Keynote, which is simplified, all these things are so complicated and they take so long to build and you have to drag little boxes. And, and if nobody remembers this content anyways, shouldn't presentations, you know, maximum should be like two to one prep time versus how long it takes to present. Maybe three to one if you're inventing the content. Yeah, no, for sure. But see, that's where like, I think the, they might be onto something because literally, uh, even just the way that it works, uh, uh, Eric, I mean, you throw in an image, it'll format it itself. You just literally take the image, drag it into a, this IA presenter, and it'll create the slide for you. Uh, if you want to have text and slide, you can do that, and it'll create like a split uh, slide screen for you. That's so nice. And so how can people get access to this? So, uh, yeah, as, as I mentioned right now, it's in beta, so you can apply for it. It's uh, on the Mac side uh, that they're doing the beta test. And so, uh, you know, I just signed up for it and uh, filled out a form and I got access to it. And so I've been playing around just to see, because again, I mean, they're, they give you some um, uh, example files as well that you can download. And they're pretty nice. I mean, I, I would say they're some of the, the nicer kind of um, very minimalistic, bold type of presentation uh, decks that I've seen out there. And so, uh, and it's very close to my approach to PowerPoint, because I think to your point, uh, you know, earlier about Microsoft, I mean, it, it isn't necessarily PowerPoint that is a problem. It's just the way that it's set up and all the, the functionality and, and most people, the biggest uh, kind of critical error is putting too much content on a slide because then that takes away from your presentation. All right. So. Well, yeah. And I mean, we weren't able to do this when we had to use like overhead examples because you had to like write it out and it was, very, yeah. you know, it took time to change the thing or even like a carousel. Um, you know, it would be too much work to fill this with content and because it was manual and those presentations I've seen from that era, you know, the sixties, seventies, in some ways, even though it's low tech, we're better. You know, I had a instructor at UBC who, um, did his presentations with overhead or like a more modern version over an overhead. So not the, the, not the see-through, but the camera that projects down and, and showed images and would put things side by side and write on paper. I remember almost all of those. It was much more engaging than, you know, a huge list of PowerPoint slides. So I like the idea of anything that makes our, our work a little bit more interesting. It seems that, so for people, if they want to request access, it's ia.net slash presenter. And uh, we can put that in the show notes. And I suppose there, there's a link there that says the pitch. And then there's another link that says request access for Mac. So the pitch is yeah. the where I got the study information. That's the longer blurb about why the product should exist, kind of their, their mission that they're getting at. So that was a, a worth a read. So I'll, I'll put that in our show notes 
uh, for people to uh, to to access because it seems like a a fairly compelling argument that they present. I mean, we've just summarized it here, but they give uh, some more specific examples of why presentation tools are bad and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's really great. I mean, I appreciate you bringing this to our attention because I've been struggling with presentation tools forever and I, I make so many for classes like you do and I'm just tired of it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to play with this and maybe, you know, I'll, I'll happily pay them, you know, 30, 40 bucks when it releases just so I can use it on all platforms. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. Then now this is the summer. So I suppose we can move on to our ed tech news item, though I will warn our uh, listeners that <laughs> the news cycle is really, really slow during the summer months. But we do have a few things um, that we wanted to highlight today. Our first article today is, uh, you know, another another home run piece by uh, Cal Newport. I guess this isn't really a, a technology story. You know, again, the news here is, is thin, folks. So we're going to start, though, with uh, Cal Newport, who he hasn't posted on his blog as much lately, uh, his Study Hacks blog. But this, this blog post is called The Three-Hour Fields Medal, A Slow Productivity Case Study. So I'm just going to quote a couple of things from the article because it's it's actually it's really well written. It says earlier today, uh, June Ha H U H Hu Ha. I don't I, I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I'm sure, but a 30 year 39 year old Princeton professor was awarded the 2022 Fields Medal, one of the highest possible honors in mathematics, for his breakthrough work on geometric. Um, combinatorics. I have no idea what this is. As described in a recent profile published in Quantum Magazine, his path to academic mathematics was meandering. He didn't get serious about the subject until his final year at Seoul National University, so he's from Korea originally, when he enrolled in a class taught by uh, Husuke Hironaka, a charismatic Japanese mathematician who had himself won the Fields Medal back in 1970. And the article is really interesting. It goes on to talk about this gentleman. He's done a bunch of things in his life. And uh, how did he get this field, fieldsman? Well, it says on any given day, who does about three hours of focused work? So we're back to the uh, deep work concept that Cal has pointed out. He might think about a math problem or prepare to lecture a classroom of students or schedule a doctor's appointment for his two sons. Then I'm exhausted, he said doing something that's valuable, meaning creative, or a task that he doesn't particularly want to do, like scheduling those appointments takes away a lot of your energy. So he basically does about three hours of focused work in his given field, I guess daily, maybe he takes some days off. And that over time that accumulates to a lot of progress. So, you know, making a concerted effort not to get distracted with the, the problems and the minutia of life. So this is right up uh, Cal's deep work philosophy. But it's really interesting to see someone like this win the Fields Medal. Um, it would be interesting also to know how many of the Nobel laureates had a similar approach who are, you know, gone that we don't know about and things like that. So this keeps coming up. And one of the, the trends that I think about, and we've talked here on this podcast, is that the problems relating to distraction 
we're going to talk about something a little bit more controversial around social media a little bit later. But, you know, we do all these, what I call busy work and interrupt important work. And it kind of gets flitted away. I think we're really underestimating the time it takes to kind of focus in on a task and get started. You know, when we're in the middle of these podcasts, I notice it takes us a little bit to kind of get started. So because we, we're chatting before and then when we're in it, we're kind of in, in the zone and on top of it for a couple of hours recording content. And then it's you turn around and, it, you know, you know, you feel like you got a lot done. So I wonder if mm -hmm. there's a secret to this from a tech angle, other than, you know, delete all the distracting apps from your home and phone and don't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I mean, I, I think that just goes without saying like this, uh, this concept of the deep work and the focus time, uh, you know, I think we underestimate that a lot of these, uh, distractions that we have it disrupts your time and it, it takes you time to get back in that zone right and so um you know if we can block off and uh, focus some of that in the uh, again i think whether you're a student or if you're um you know academic uh, this is something that we should put in place for our time management yeah i agree um and it's you know again more just a reminder that you know, small incremental progress does add up to a lot, especially if you're doing good work in a small amount of time. He wasn't working on his problems eight hours a day. He did maybe three hours a day, which is a more manageable yeah. amount. I think uh, just to break things up, maybe let's move on to that, to a medium post that we had found that is probably better as a reference point, I'm thinking for, um, for our listeners. And so this was, I, I'm not familiar with the uh, publication. This was done published in uh, Emerged EdTech Insights. And so there's this Nick Newman uh, gentleman. His blog says, you know, I write, or his profile says, I write about growth from personal learning to startups, investments, blah, blah, blah. But he he's talking about higher education in this case. And uh, it's called the EdTech Top 50 Emerging Companies for Higher Education. And so he talks about this, especially post-pandemic, being a particularly busy space. Um, he says, we launched the top 50 with a LinkedIn Live open session chaired by Mary Kernock-Cook of the Emerge Higher Education Advisory Board. I'm not familiar with the organization. And featuring two of the top 50's founders, and he lists them, who were interviewed to highlight best practice. Um, so we also had the higher education leader's perspective and he goes on and on to talk about uh, these kind of top 50 companies by category. There's a few interesting quick overviews. It says 33% of the companies are from Europe, which sell globally. I'm kind of surprised by that. I, I always assumed that the market share for European ed tech was smaller, but I don't, I don't know why I had that assumption. Uh, they span from, so their, their inception and spans from 2011 to 2020. So the age is, is a roughly six on average. Uh, some of these companies are bootstrapped, meaning, you know, kind of held together with bubble gum and string and stuff like that. Uh, but the highest funding achieved was 176 million with an average of 38 million in funding uh, on average between these companies. So we're not talking, we're talking successful, but not, you know, billion dollar companies, startups here. Uh, and then between them, you know, is employed about 4,500 people. So there's a lot of companies, but most of them are really small. 
And it's interesting because again, I'm looking at this list and did, have you seen or heard of many of these companies before? No, I haven't. And even the, the only reason why I came across this is one of the, uh, the people that we've interviewed in the past is the uh, co-founder of Critic, uh, which is a peer uh, review system uh, that we actually used here at the University of Calgary. And uh, they're on one of the on the list uh, as part of that 50. And so it's Padlet. I noticed that some of yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's there's a few that we were aware of, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I I didn't know otherwise. Uh, there was a lot of companies that, uh, like you say, this European uh, kind of uh, market share. Uh, it was all new to me, but it's uh, it's definitely a, a good list. Maybe just to go through and uh, see if there is anything that uh, educators might be interested in. Yeah. I mean, so I just started, I mean, I'm always looking for tools to play with and, you know, we use them and try to come up with suggestions for our podcast. So for in my opinion, uh, for anyone listening, this would be a, it's a fairly short article. It would be well worth clicking through this list. I have a couple of examples from this list that were interesting. So there was, you know, things again, companies I hadn't heard of. So here's one that caught my eye because plagiarism is something that comes up at higher education all the time, you know, academic integrity. So there's a company called Copy Leaks. Um, so their tagline is pro proving originality, promoting integrity, preventing plagiarism and protecting you. So it's a plagiarism detect and detection system for paraphrase, you know, paraphrasing content uses some sort of AI and it kind of gives some screenshots. It looks like a much more uh, intuitive interface than the other cheat detection tools I've heard of, but I, ha I haven't heard of Copy Leaks. Um, there was a company interested, interestingly here called you will, which was all for student health and wellness. So it's kind of a platform for providing access to student health and wellness. So, you know, ca campuses can subscribe and then presumably they get all of the, uh, supports that come with that company. They even had some online learning platforms. So this is one, I mean, we've talked about. You know, Scott Galloway's, we've talked about obviously Udemy, these kind of crowdsourced, we've talked about masterclass, but here's one called Outlier, which I hadn't heard of before, um, world-class online ed college education. And so, but they have endorsements from, you know, Fast Company and all sorts of TechCrunch and Gizmodo and all these tech organizations. So this looks like a, a, an example of maybe a higher production value online learning company. Uh, there was another one called Engagely. So create engaging virtual hybrid and in-person experiences in premium learning. So kind of a, you know, an interesting dashboard where I guess you can have graphics and kind of interactions with all your kind of like with all the video conference people on one of the sides, kind of like how Zoom puts you into that kind of tiled interface. And then you can kind of have all sorts of engagement while you can see other people who have attended a given meeting. So there's all these really cool um, tech companies, which I had never heard of before. And uh, yeah, probably worthwhile to click through. Yeah, for sure. I don't have too much to say about this. Other than that, I'm just uh, surprised how many great things are in here. So I think what we'll probably do is we'll, we'll probably mine this list and maybe, you know, uh, point people towards things that we will think they'll be interesting. So this is certainly, uh, a good database of sorts. Um, now we did have an, an article that's not necessarily tech or education specific, um, but it does touch on it. 
So uh, the social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, are, so he's famous for, uh, well, his most recent book was talks about politics on campus. So uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a really interesting book. The, what, the work that I'm most familiar with was The, the Righteous Mind, which, which explains and talks about the social psychology between kind of religious and political tribalism, why people become so polarized. Actually, I recommend that uh, everybody read that book. It really changed my view on the whole left-right political paradigm. Uh, as you and I have discussed, Chris, it kind of makes it irrelevant in, in some way. It, it talks about how things are not that simple and, you know, why there's it's fair to respect different sides of arguments and stuff like that and why it's so difficult for people to respect those arguments. But he was interviewed by the New Statesman recently uh, in an article called America is the Ghost of Liberal Democracy's Future. And, you know, he, he basically is doing a follow-up interview, a comment, um, because his he wrote an essay in April of 2022 uh, in The Atlantic, uh, which got a lot of traction. I think it was even tweeted out by, you know, Barack Obama or something like that. So a lot of people read it. Uh, and it was titled why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid, which is kind of a provocative title. I'm not going to go into the politics because this isn't a politics uh, podcast. And, you know, we, we just try to stick to the technology, but his basic argument is, and is that, and, you know, he explains this in the coddling of the American mind is really the damage of the downstream consequences of social media talking about how social media started off as kind of a just like the early internet a place for people to connect and kind of share things but this idea of um virality um which has spawned people to kind of take on almost like a performative characteristic in an online but also public environment has kind of added fuel to a, a you know kind of a societal polarization that's existed. And I thought it was an interesting piece because um, what people are afraid to say or, you know, discussing topics in universities is becoming, it has become more and more difficult. I don't think that's particularly controversial. There's just a lot more sensitivity around given topics. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to steal man, meaning um, lift up an opposing viewpoint to analyze it without offending people. And it's an interesting piece because he he talks a bit about in his book, and jumping around here, I realize between all these different sources, the kind of the really severe mental health consequences of growing up, especially for generations Z, of growing up in an age where social media has been kind of a part of their life from day one. And of course, what's happening on college campuses has spilled out into other places. And I thought it would be an interesting uh piece to provide our readers because he talks, he kind of gives light to and tries to get the heart of the issue of why this is a dangerous trend. And so I don't know, Chris, I didn't really have a, a particular direction in to go today other than, you know, what should, with regard to social media, what, what should universities or higher education or education, educational institutions, it could be K to 12, do about this? He, Jonathan does give some examples he, he, that are he says, you're never going to get rid of social media. It's here now. It's just the way it is. But the idea of, you know, not making it so easy to share things so they become viral. Uh, he provides some non 
content moderation. He doesn't believe in this in censoring content. He says that doesn't work. And he has some good reasons for that. But he does give some suggestions on how to dampen kind of the virality and the reactive kind of outrage generator that social media can be. But what is a university uh, supposed to do about this? What, 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 is there a policy that they can, they can put in place? Well, and I, I think we've kind of talked about this. Like I've been thinking more and more about this, uh, even just from a, an education standpoint. And uh, uh, I'm leaning actually for the fall, I'm actually thinking to limit as much as possible access to smartphones uh, for the students. Right. And so uh, just in terms of the classroom environment, if uh, if somebody needs to, you know, certainly having access to your phone, you know, there's maybe something that uh, is an emergency or something personal that you have to handle. But, you know, you can leave the classroom for that. On the flip side, uh, I'm also looking at maybe integrating QR codes so that if you do have your smartphones, and putting them in as part of my class exercises and so on, where now there's a reason why you would be using your uh, your devices. But um, I mean, it's a it's a tough, it's a challenging uh, kind of uh, situation. As uh, I mean, I, I read that lengthy Hyde uh, article uh, just in terms of uh, uh, the um, the ten year kind of the controversial um, heading, and uh, yeah, I mean it. He does provide some interesting, uh, you know, options of going and changing going forward. But uh, again, I don't know how much we can do other than uh, just focus in on from an education standpoint, how we're going to be using these. And um, I think social media in particular, I mean, uh, I think one of the things is that there is, we quite often, I guess, maybe perception is reality. And we sometimes forget that we're getting a lot of extremes in those, those posts, right? It's a, it's usually very small number of people and uh, maybe in certain courses, maybe you could also look at uh, analyzing some of these posts and, uh, you know, developing some of that critical thinking and analysis uh, if the subject um, is appropriate. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the, I, when I think about this, I think of it as a concern, as a technology, it's sharing technology. So you have two dimensions here. And social media makes it very easily to defame somebody. Um, and that becomes a problem in higher education where you maybe discuss controversial topics uh, and analyze them and try to defend them, not so you can agree with them, but so you can understand the other side better. You may never agree with the other side or come around, but if you don't understand where they're coming from, that's kind of, uh, there's some, was it Alexis de Tocqueville has a famous quote, and it's quoted in the article that if, you know, a man only understands one side, he, know, he knows little of that. Um, and But that's very difficult to do uh, when you are dealing with people who have become very sensitive to dealing with controversial topics, partly because they've been exposed to social media. There's so much bullying on social media. It's almost kind of, I think outrage sometimes is a bit of an addiction. That's my opinion. I don't have evidence for that. So should universities not, like what's the standard that they should set? I guess is what I think about. So if, if social media is a problem and it needs to not necessarily be regulated, you can't stop people from using it. So in the classroom, you can say, okay, I don't want any devices in my class. 
you know, you can't post pictures of this class. You can't record things. You could have strict policies like that. You know, you can't record what the prof or your students said and then post it to get likes and to get internet fame, which is also a motivating factor. And I also wonder if the university should just be like, you know, we're not going to communicate with people on social media. Like, like <laughs> if we have, there's always this argument that we have to meet people where they're at. So, you know, engage them on the, on the, on whatever the latest platform is, but I'm starting to wonder if that's if that's necessary. Does the university really need to engage people on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, or could we just not have these accounts and it would be fine? Well, I mean, from a business standpoint, in my uh, other role, uh, just consulting companies and clients and so on, I mean, uh, one of the things that I always suggest is that you should think about your audience and think about who you're trying to get the message to. And at the end of the day, uh, you should pick the medium that best gets that message to that particular audience, right? And But I guess by default, many organizations, they'll have a, a presence on all the mainstream, uh, you know, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, which, uh, you know, even the meta companies, I mean, I don't know. I haven't checked out, uh, let's say, for instance, uh, Mount Royal. Do we have a TikTok account? Who knows? Maybe we do, right? I mean, uh, again, uh, these are things that as uh, communication experts or marketers, they have to kind of look at. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, to go and engage with every response and reply and what benefit are you getting out of it at the end? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I guess what I'm curious about is that I haven't, is there, is there quantifiable evidence that uh, a company can break through the noise of social media or an organization in general and actually get better business or, you know, like this is, I mean, I'm a, I've been told that I have to be there and we do it with our podcast too. So I'm part of the problem potentially, yeah. but you know, I don't know that we get more downloads on this podcast because I tweet out stuff. I, I see no correlation. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if we get some like from uh, certain things, let's say from like a LinkedIn post where uh, we may have people in our network. But uh, yeah, I mean, to that that point, I mean, probably what comes to mind for me uh, is uh, a company like Patagonia. Right? Patagonia in the summer of 2020, they boycotted Facebook, which is now the the meta, uh, you know, companies in terms of advertising. Right. And, uh, you know, this was something that uh, they are still standing by and, uh, you know, they've doubled down on that effort. And uh, again, I think it comes down to that uh, audience. And, you know, in their case, they have uh, you could even consider it a bit of a cult following um, of people who uh, believe in those ideals. Um, and, uh, you know, they don't want to be part of that problem, uh, especially when there's uh, the spread of uh, hate speech or misinformation. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, again, that's part of their ethos. And so I, I, I can understand why that is a good thing for them. Right. And again, you know, there's, there's always different ways of uh, connecting with your uh, user base, right. And your audience. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's why I think for like our purposes, uh, you know, I always want to kind of just focus back in on uh, for our audience, which are educators and, uh, you know, students, what, what would be the best. And I, I, I think we should be considering 
the classroom experience, the classroom environment, mm. what's going to enhance that. And if there's a, if this is a problem, which we know that it is a problem, we didn't, uh, we didn't have social media, let's say 15 years ago, we didn't even have much of these problems, let's say 10 years ago, and we're still, we were figuring this out. And now you have a bit of a big tech monopoly, and they're siphoning off this data, and there's all sorts of issues. And uh, I think they even underestimate those unintended consequences. Uh, but, you know, this is where uh, I think we've discussed this in the past, but especially in the classroom, imagine if we're discussing some type of topic and students are still, and I mean, it could be even, uh, it's not just students, it's uh, educators, uh, everybody we're discussing some type of topic, we're forming our opinions, we're having that classroom discussion. Imagine going and recording that and putting it out on the internet while we're going and you know working our way through that issue. Right. Yeah, and it should be a safe environment. It should be one where we can be free to go and uh, work through while we're still uh, trying to absorb the information and uh, have that dialogue. Yeah, it's difficult to, it's very easy to capture somebody as they're working through a problem and they're wrong or misinformed or not completely informed along the way. It takes a long time for people to reach a conclusion. So the problem I see with social media in a, in a classroom environment is that if you're new to a topic, um, you know, let's say you're discussing something controversial, you're looking at the, or you're looking at the history of women's suffrage or something, and you're working through problems. Maybe you're talking about, you know, why that was opposed at the time. It would be very easy for someone to take a snapshot out of context and then send it out, right? So, which is why I think of- Yeah, totally. As a, again, I'm not focusing on the politics of Jonathan Haidt's argument, but I'm thinking from a policy, you know, the university, universities are kind of, I, I probably is policy, but I, I wonder sometimes if it's, uh, needs to be more specific to that kind of content because otherwise people won't, you know, it'll be difficult to engage people in a classroom environment where you're supposed to, promote critical thinking. I don't really have a solution, obviously, because it's too complicated. Yeah. I'm still working through this. And podcasting is very much like that. We're thinking about things on the fly, right? So uh, yeah, for those absolutely. for those people who listen to this, uh, don't, uh, you know, snapshot because of this podcast and assume that I've come to some grand conclusion. <laughs> it's just an interesting food for thought and something maybe we'll have to keep an eye out for. Because uh, I suspect that we may see more um, policies in higher ed, in particular around social media and what can be used in the classroom, what devices can be brought into the classroom. Yeah, and again, uh, I think even uh, from a learning perspective, and that's why uh, just going back and you know to our roots, there's certain cognitive connections that get made just by writing, right? And that we've discussed this uh, in the past with using stylus and, you know, uh, whether it's like an Apple pencil or with a tablet. And, uh, and again, uh, just because we have these devices, we have this access to technology, should we be using it? And if so, how? Right. I mean, these are some of the, the things that, and a lot of it also just comes down to pedagogy. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's move on to our, we have two discussion items today, which is good because the news is thin. Um, so I've been talking at nauseum about this. Did you want to talk a little bit about uh, the Harvard story first? Yeah, so again, we'll include this link. Uh, there was a webinar that I uh, uh, listened to and attended. It was uh, by a professor, um, 
Moen Sani, and uh, he's uh, also the Associate Dean of Digital Technology at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. In fact, he also is uh, in part uh, teaching on that section for Scott Galloway's platform, uh, so where he teaches product management courses. And so there's uh, some articles that he's written over the last two years, and this uh, this webinar was his reflection on what has happened over the, the pandemic. Uh, and uh, specifically, he was looking at executive education and looking at, uh, you know, that in-person versus online dichotomy. And so um, I've taken some notes, uh, you know, this is kind of my summary of some of the things, but it was, it was really interesting. I mean, uh, it's different with the executive education is uh, very much a revenue generator for universities. And so there's, uh, it's a little bit of a different, um, you know, when you're looking at your student profile, you know, you're looking at management, senior executives. So the price point is obviously different, but um, uh, for us, the rest of us, uh, I think there is uh, some key kind of takeaways that we can look at. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a really interesting kind of uh, agenda that he went through, um, uh, you know, talking about the this roadmap for reinvention. And so what he described was in 2020, and this is what we, our first episode uh, in terms of that uh, synchronous versus asynchronous, this is what we were uh, bringing up. We were in react mode. So in 2020, the pandemic really was driving how we're gonna go and deal with the modality. 2021, we had maybe a little bit of time to reflect and we could redesign. And so this was a digital first kind of redesign. And again, because we were online, uh, not in the classroom. And uh, with 2022 going forward, we're now in the reimagine phase. And so uh, again, he's focusing more on the business model and uh, looking at the reimagining or reimagining the innovative business models from that aspect. But I, I think you can apply this to pretty much anything uh, in terms of the education uh, side of things. But um, you know, on the React side, what did we do? We basically had uh, this virtual delivery. Uh, maybe there, in some cases, you might have had uh, hybrid, especially when you're commanding that higher price point. People want to see that value. They they believe there's that perception of uh, better learning in the classroom. And so in some cases, they, uh, they successfully did this. I mean, he, he shares it in his article that's linked in there as well, where people were in the classrooms, but then they were also running Zoom at the same time. And so uh, he refers it to as uh, roomies and Zoomies. And so there were people uh, in at homes and then, you know, uh, uh, just uh, going and connecting with Zoom, but then you also had people within the room as well. Uh, and then they tried with like uh, plexiglass barriers and and so on and so forth. Uh, but um, you know, especially with the 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 modalities, there was a lot of pivoting that had to happen. There was uh, issues and learnings, and uh, you know, some of the things that he had to experiment with. If he had to do a case discussion, now all of a sudden he had to go and break that case up, uh, that content, and put it into chunks, and then redesign that. Uh, the interaction and engagement was different. Uh, the networking and socialization. In fact, uh, one one of the pros and advantages of being online was he was able to bring in some really high profile people 
to come in and do a guest speaking just for a few minutes, let's say five or 10 minutes, as opposed to having a full hour set aside. And then you have to go and, you know, have the person park and, and all those kind of other uh, logistical things. And that opened up his uh, access. Uh, he talked about equity, inclusion, uh, having icebreakers, uh, intro sessions were a little bit different. And so the, he had, uh, you know, looking at all the, the various issues, the learnings, uh, from a, a redesign perspective, the other thing that he had to kind of look at was redesigning the assessments. Um, even just from a, a presentation standpoint, it's one thing to have maybe a webcam or maybe a smartphone, but his setup, it was interesting. He actually had an SLR camera, so a DSLR. And uh, some of the things that he would do was use a stylus to go and interact with the screens, kind of like what you were talking about, Eric, with uh, having the overhead projectors, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and in fact, actually, he had two different setups. One was for live streaming. So he had, uh, you know, if he's doing a lecture, he would stand up, had the SLR. Then he had a different setup for recording at home lectures and uh, discussions, uh, which would uh, likely be consumed uh, at your own leisure. So these recorded side of things. Again, with that redesigning, he had to also rethink uh, some of the modalities. And, um, you know, so there was immersive live streaming. Uh, there was uh, uh, having the ability, and this has happened with executive education. I've seen it with even, uh, uh, for instance, uh, Queens here, at, uh, in Canada, you know, based out of Kingston, they had their MBA program for the longest time where you would rent an office in maybe you know, some of the major metropolitan um, centers. Calgary had one, Montreal, for instance. And they would live stream somebody from the Kingston campus and they would go and project out uh, the lectures right across time zones. And so wow. then you had these geographic pods, you could call them. Um, there was a, a immersive hybrid classroom. So like what I discussed uh, about having both in-person and then those who couldn't make it online. And uh, even some of the, uh, the up and coming kind of technology having like hollow presence. And so if let's say you have a panel of guest speakers, now you could have them projected into this uh, virtual uh, kind of stage for a discussion. So it was, it was quite interesting. But uh, again, his background, he comes from a marketing product management. Uh, and so he was looking at, you know, product, uh, the product aspect, uh, like how can we go and convert this hybrid format, uh, have like combination of asynchronous versus uh, also having synchronous, having, you know, components that are delivered online uh, and how people want to go and, um, have it scaled more effectively. And he, he went through even talking about the, the profits, the, the margins, right? The revenues that come from there. Um, even it, it was interesting, he had some analogies where he was talking about like open architecture and micro-credentialing. And so uh, uh, let's say for instance, having like Fidelity, which is in the US for executives. Uh, then he thought, okay, maybe you could have a bunch of consortium partnership business schools where they would uh, go and be competing against uh, each other, but have them work together and uh, you could create uh, some type of programming. And so he described that as uh, maybe like an orbits for executive education. And then maybe you could have some personalized uh, lifelong learning. Uh, so kind of like a Netflix for executive education. And uh, some of the trends uh, which he believes uh, people want an omni-channel uh, 
delivery. Uh, so having a choice, having a bunch of different uh, options, uh, depending on the audience. Uh, you talked about having strategic learning partnerships, uh, outsourced uh, online executive education uh, partnerships. Uh, there was this uh, K-shaped growth uh, in the valley of death. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was based on the price point and so on. And then maybe skill-based certification and credentialing. And, um, you know, there are a bunch of uh, what he describes as barbarians at the gate. So there's learning marketplaces, there's practitioners as brands. So that's that was kind of interesting where now it's not even people who have any type of credentials whatsoever. They're just in industry and they are going and teaching courses. Right. Then he talked about faculty as brands. And so this is where like uh, he described himself or even Scott Galloway uh, with section four, where they're taking that business education and putting it on this platform. And now the the faculty themselves are being branded as uh, experts. Uh, They had outsourced partners. They talked about custom uh, degrees, uh, the LMS platforms as a service as well. Uh, So yeah, it was uh, uh, just going through some of the things like um, I, I look at, uh, especially like the asynchronous versus uh, synchronous. So he looked at online and then in person. So from a synchronous standpoint, you could have online live virtual programs, right? And the synchronous in, in the classroom would be just traditional as having classroom delivery. But then there's also the asynchronous where you have the flipped classroom. And in fact, uh, one of the things that he found uh, that was uh, maybe better in a Zoom environment uh, is having those breakout rooms, right? How, how much uh, more, more of a challenge is it in the classroom to actually get people formed into groups to work on a classroom exercise? So uh, uh, he uh, actually made the point that doing the, the flipped classroom is easier with uh, the online side of things. Well, it's more private too, right? Like, I mean, I've done lots of group work in the classroom, it's kind of essential. And my experience is very similar that the breakout rooms online tend to, uh, people, uh, unless, you know, there's just tons of silence in that particular group or something, they're on top of it instantly. And they have kind of a, a literal, physical in a sense separation from the rest of the class discussion to where they're not going to be overheard and so they can just be you know candor is very important uh when you're working through problems especially in a group setting even a small group so i can see why that would be the case yeah for sure and so his kind of when he looked at it there's like these orthodoxies these uh, kind of uh, preconceived uh, modalities And typically the executive education would be either online or in person. That's it. Right. And uh, he uh, posed that when you're doing the online and it's strictly online, that's going to be less engaging. It's going to be less immersive. And as such, it's going to have to be priced lower. The the C-level, this is the executive level type of program, they have to be delivered in person. Right. That was their kind of like two approaches. But then what he uh, mentions is that there, there's actually a bit of, uh, it isn't really black and white. There's a bit of a gray area, right? There's a, this continuum of gray that you have to kind of understand. Uh, and it can't just be either it's online or in person. 
there's uh, we have to take maybe some of the best uh, and find uh, you know these boundaries uh, there is uh, some sort of unification you can take the the best of those uh, points and uh, in terms of that uh, this is where he uh, goes and uh, poses that omni-channel focus right so that there can be maybe online components and then there can be offline components there can be live streaming or in person uh, there even in terms of uh, the decision making there could be human decision making there could be ai decision making uh, and then even in terms of the, the network right there's a wired network there's a wireless network but maybe now you have a bit of a combination of both right so there is a uh, a bit of a what he describes as a wisdom in grayness. Yeah, I, I'm interested to know. I guess when I think about face-to-face -face learning, synchronous face-to-face -face learning, I think of all of the really engaging lectures that super well-known profs at UBC gave as an undergraduate, just these mm -hmm. brilliant talks. These are people who really knew their stuff. Uh, they People ask great questions because you're all there as a group. You're all, it's like going to a movie together. That's the best way I can describe it. So those were better face-to-face. -face. There's something about being in the lecture hall and listening to someone and taking notes that I find far more engaging than sitting on a screen. But the group stuff, you know, trying to get a group in class, you kind of look to your left, you look to your right, especially if you have to pair yourself. Right. It, there is something streamlined about, okay, I've automatically assigned these people in groups. This is your task. It's a lot faster in an online environment to be like you folks over there into your group room. Here's your instructions. Right. Um, yeah. So I think for the lectures, because there is a performative aspect to synchronous teaching, being a good presenter is being a good speaker, really engaging. Pro I think lecture is effective if there's questions and breaks and examples where people can engage but i think lecture isn't bad it's just some people are bad at it um and it's difficult to do in an online environment and make it really engaging there's no body movements everyone's sitting or they're laying down that's terrible it's just physically not in a place where you're kept awake and so it seems like a the at least the easiest way to break this up into a hybrid model is to do the kind of maybe some of the 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 guest lecturing, especially if they're coming from afar online, the group work and kind of the workshopping at a distance online. So you have access to your, your, your the workspace that you're comfortable with. And then for the, the lectures and the, you know, the key content, that's maybe better in, in, a, in, a, in a hall where it's more of an experience. That seems like at least as a rule of thumb, the cutoff that makes the most sense. Yeah, and so he he did talk about some of that, like that blending of the channels, and like uh, you know, uh, as you probably the the term that he used was just having that immersive experience, right? So in the in the face to face lecture hall, um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, Eric, like online synchronous, it's much more efficient to do those breakouts. You're also it's not location, uh, you know, agnostic. Um, the teamwork in person could maybe be more intense, 
there's multiple different participation methods online. So you could, you know, voice uh, your comments. You can go and put it into the, the chat. You can use polling and so on. In the classroom, it's, it's not as easy. I mean, you might have to use some tools. But then on the flip side, there's, uh, especially during some of those breaks, there's that kind of water cooler, serendipitous uh, meeting other people, the social aspects, the relationships. But then online, I mean, imagine if you could just have uh, some really high profile pop in guest that you wouldn't otherwise be able to access just because of uh, geographical location. And then maybe there's some asynchronous uh, aspects that people like too. They, that can be self-paced, on-demand. They can repeat and review. Right. Uh, and so especially for very technical concepts, so there's no time constraints on, on that. And especially with him, uh, one of the, the models that he used, because he is uh, uh, looking at it from a product management uh, standpoint, he used uh, something that uh, Clayton Christensen uh, uh, coined, which was the jobs to be done. Yeah, that's a great and theory. So that's how... That's how he kind of worked on it. Uh, he looked at the, the synchronous aspect, uh, you know, what, uh, what are the functional uh, side of things? Uh, so, you know, the functional knowledge that people are looking to acquire, you're looking at enhancing leadership skills, uh, getting ahead in uh, their job, their career, having a positive impact on business. Uh, there was the emotional side. Uh, so feeling engaged during learning, uh, having that sense of accomplishment, being uh, inspired in an inspired setting, uh, experience great food and activities. Actually, one thing that was interesting that he mentioned um, when they were online, he actually had wine shipped out to his uh, students. And so they were on on their Zoom and then they did the wine tastings and so on. And, uh, you know, so he was able to blend the two. Um, and then from an asynchronous aspect, like the, the social side of things, so meeting interesting people, building your social network, um, uh, gain an impressive credential, learning from others' experiences, uh, and then some ancillary uh, aspects were just getting career coaching, um, acquiring alumni privileges, uh, seeing interesting places. And so he looked at, and I believe he's going to do this going forward, maybe there's some things like, uh, let's say, where you can do a bit of a blend. So maybe the grand opening could be holographic or it could be online. Uh, maybe there's certain sections that you can modularize and uh, have content chunks that can be live streamed. There could be other things that are maybe framework based that can be asynchronous. And then you bring people together for the capstone sessions, the presentations, uh, it can be that grand finale. Uh, and, uh, you know, this mixing it up, uh, some of the, the things that he's been using is multiplayer simulation games. He's layering content on uh, asynchronous uh, programs. He's flipping the classroom. He's zooming together geographically. He's having that hollow graphic projection of uh, speakers. Uh, the office hours, they're almost like uh, coffee chats that he's having uh, online. And uh, the other thing that, again, just from Executive education is a little bit different, but looking at segmentation based on that modality. So if you're going to be charging $10,000 a participant, then it has to be 100% synchronous. You can bring down the costs, uh, let's say, uh, uh, to the blended format. Uh, it could be like $2,500, and you know, this is where you could 
bring down. And then there's at the very end, it's like 100% asynchronous where you have these asynchronous MOOCs and maybe it's like $50 per participant. I like the idea of mixing it up. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a, it's difficult to know empirically what is best at any given time. One of the things I would say is that, you know, let's say you did the key, you know, synchronous key lectures face-to-face -face in person in the room, you know, the real, the performative lectures, and then you do the online thing and you mix it up and then you do a face-to-face -face workshop and you blend some of the networking. I think the benefit to this, regardless of how it's mixed, I mean, obviously you're thinking about the modality that best suits the activity and the content and the outcome, but you're also giving people just by mixing things up exposure to all those ways of working too. So even if you didn't totally hit the mark as an instructor and you thought, wow, I could have done this, maybe this would have worked better online than face-to-face. -face. Ultimately, they were exposed to that method of working. I, I suspect this is important for executive education uh, where, you're, where you're in a management position, but in general, right? I remember I, I have a colleague at Athabasca who said, we have to incorporate some sort of mobile technology and a few things into our learning. Cause he's like, we can't honestly tell people they're getting a balanced education. If they're not exposed to learning in a way that they're going to continue, they're probably going to have to do when they leave here. And so there is some advantage to doing this, right? Like sitting in a lecture hall, it's just, or it's just not how things work. I mean, there's advantages to it, but it's not um, exposing people like, it's, it's like a meta skill, right? You get, if you've now used critic or, or all the functionality of zoom, or you've had to do presentations in different environments, it's like, those are skills of themselves just by navigating the technology. Maybe as an executive, you have to go teach something and now you can remember, oh yeah, this method was the most engaging for me. So I'm going to go try that, you know, with my, you know, my team leadership retreat or something like that. Yeah, no, for sure. Even uh, it's it's funny, Eric. Recently, I've uh, attended. Um, uh, it was a bit of a uh, workshopping type of session for some students uh, where they are working on uh, some startup ventures, and we had a whole bunch of uh, technical difficulties just uh, using like Zoom, and then you know they tried to go and make it immersive with uh, using these whiteboarding technologies, but there was issues yeah. and so on. And uh, and again, like this is where just because you can doesn't mean you should, and just because maybe for something that it did work out, maybe it's not the best uh, approach, right? And um, uh, I think overall, at the end of it, I mean, the, one of the predictions uh, that we've made over the last couple of years is that the future is hybrid. We've said that. I think executive education is maybe that much easier to do that um, yeah. uh, because of the price point. I mean, they're able to go in, uh, and he talked about this in the webinar, they can go and customize something for Microsoft and bring it right to their offices if they want. Right. Uh, so, uh, again, that that custom education, that's something where they can go and develop those deep partnerships and have the strategic um, uh, clients that they drive those transformational business impact for them. Uh, but overall, I guess his main point that he's trying to make is that uh, this traditional view of online or in person, it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. You need to go and look at it, uh, taking that product-centric, that modality-centric view uh, where you're basically looking at the perspective, start with the learners, their needs, then design that omni-channel 
learning experience with a blend of modalities. And, uh, you know, he described uh, one of his like most successful product programs is this product management uh, program where they have, uh, you know, certain aspects that are, uh, you know, the program starts, there's like these or this orientation, there is peer networking through webinars, there's one on one success coaches, they have a bunch of their core modules are online. Uh, there's some live sessions in there, there's uh, uh, faculty sessions, they have uh, industry speaker sessions, career advisory, they have electives that they can go and choose. So that core is 16 weeks. And then they have these online electives that are 12 to 16 weeks where they select two. Uh, then they have live electives that are two weeks. And so they can either take in-person or live virtual session. And then they have three days in-person on campus. But again, keep in mind, like that program is $30,000. Yeah. There's four, four cohorts. The cohort is 40 on average. So that's creating, generating revenue of $5 million a year for that particular program. That's a lot of money. Yeah. 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 This is a really interesting concept. I mean, so what we're going to put in the show notes, I guess we'll put a link to both the video and I think it linked on that article, uh, the, sorry, the page for the video. Um, there's also a previous article that that gentleman wrote. Yeah. So yeah, Mohan uh, Sani, he wrote an article in 2021, uh, just talking right. about how he's uh, redesigning some of the, the stuff. And so this is his reimagining and reflecting uh, with the video. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I, even though it is with executive education and it's a different type of uh, student profile, uh, I think there's a lot of things that we can take away from this and apply it to whether it's undergraduate or graduate uh, teaching. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think that students, they're going to want some of this flexibility and it's, it's on us to in the future to kind of re- think and reimagine how we're going to go and deliver. I'm, I mean, myself, uh, even though we're off for the summer, I'm contemplating this. I mean, maybe there's some things that I could record and, uh, you know, where we don't have to go and spend as much time. And then, you know, that I do it that one time and students can go and, you know, review it. They can go and repeat it. Uh, you know, it's something that will be there forever. Uh, and uh, so just because we did it during online uh, delivery, complete online delivery, doesn't mean that we have to do away with it. And, uh, you know, uh, I think really the big value, as we've kind of talked about, is in the classroom, it's more of that network and working hands on. And maybe there is some of that uh, theatrical that you're talking about. But that being said, if you really look at it from the, you know, learning perspective, Lecture is only so much that you're going to go and get from uh, learning. Yeah. It's really from those classroom discussions and uh, uh, doing these kind of hands-on activities and exercises that bring the most out of that. And those are easier online. I mean, in person as opposed to online. I think this is probably, because uh, this is now giving me a lot to think about. This is probably a good place to stop for today. Uh, and we should save the effortless book discussion maybe for another time just given that it touches on some of the same aspects but different but i think this is probably a good place to stop for our listeners because this is something that you maybe people will want to contemplate before we dive into another juicy topic 
Sure, absolutely. Okay, well, we I think we'll this is in our next recording. Uh, you know, we'll we'll probably return to this idea if there could be another way. I think that's a good place to return to because it uh, there's a few ways to approach that, and I, that's probably a, a, we can probably continue this uh, next time, which I think will be good. Did you want to tell people, Chris, where they can contact you? Yeah, so my website uh, is uh, Chris with a K, K R I S, Hans, H A N S dot C A, and you can find all of uh, my social media accounts and email and so on. And I am Eric Christensen, and you can contact me uh, and find out more about me through ericchristensen.net. Um, again, social media links to my other blog and stuff like that are there. My social media accounts are pretty much all locked down at this point for reasons I'll discuss next time. Um, so you can't really contact me on Twitter or see anything that I post anymore. It's all private for the time being, but uh, that's there's a good reason for that. And that's uh, we'll talk about that another time. All right, stay tuned, I guess, for part two. That's right. Take care, Chris. All right, thanks. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTech Examined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.